he came where, out. He went where out. can I buy a Moody Blues CD? Well, let's see. <laughs> we can drive around yard sales in Long Island. From the smallest room in New York City comes a show that gives you a reason to live. I need to have a new segment on the show called uh, Pat Dixon Misses the Point. Because every time I go back and edit something, I go, oh, wow, I really missed the point. At least once per show, there'll be a time when you or another guest that I have is telling me something that is interesting, that is uh, would, would make for a great conversation, and I end up, the next thing that I say, completely off. So what we were talking about, uh, this Emmanuel guy who was reaching for a gun, and he wound up uh, walking out with no bail because, you know, of this ugly uh, judge woman. Right, right. So, uh, you know, you were talking about just really what do you do? Because it's not a good idea to just lock them up necessarily. Maybe they shouldn't be in jail, but they shouldn't be walking free either. And it, it begs the question, what then? So I think uh, at that point I said something like, uh, well, all those arrests don't necessarily mean convictions. I, it was way off. Yes. Yeah, joining me now, uh, Seth Barron, associate editor, City Journal. Hey, Seth. Hey, Pat. How are you? I'm all right. So <laughs> I, I recall this now. You know, I, I didn't really feel like arguing with you about it. You were no. making a point. <laughs> right. No. And, uh, yeah, and, and you're very polite and very patient. So tell me, uh, I mean, what do we do with these people who, who don't fit? Well, um, here's the thing. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of widespread mental illness. Just the, You know, let me just give the, the quick summary. Um, our society used to institutionalize mentally ill people, like on a grand scale. There were mental hospitals all over the place, you know, housing 5,000, 6,000 people, huge mental hospitals all, you know. And in fact, you know, New York City has several that are um, mostly vacant now. Uh, there's like, they're, they're, you, know, there's, you can look it up on uh, the Internet. You'll see very creepy pictures of these um, half-empty uh, Mental hospitals, but yes, um, like up in the Bronx, and and uh, there's an island and someplace, right? Is that these are the ones you're talking about? Um, not so much, but um, uh, Creedmoor facility mm-hmm. in Queens. Um, there's one on Staten Island that's kind of creepy and unusual. Um, but in the '60s, they invented Thorazine, uh, you know, heavy duty antipsychotic medications, and this prom- this helped to prompt. A uh, deinstitutionalization movement. Also, you know, people like R. D. Lang and Thomas. There was an anti-psychiatric movement at the same time, saying these people aren't crazy. Society's crazy, and you know, we're just. This is just a form of behavior that we are judging and exclude, labeling and excluding. Um, you know, as a means of social control. So basically, from the '60s and '70s, there was a huge move to. Um, Deinstitutionalize the mentally ill. Many of them wound up, and, and the idea was okay. We're going to get the, put them into local facilities, community facilities. Uh, we'll give them medications. You know, we're going to be more humane. But but what's effectively happened um, is that people, mentally ill people, very you know to a, to a significant degree, are not being treated, and they're just on their own, on the streets. Their families eventually can't deal with them anymore um, because they're schizophrenic or manic-depressive and they're not necessarily going to take their medications. So what happens is they wind up just cycling through the um, criminal justice system. And it's really, uh, it's not fair to them. It's not fair to the police. 
we're basically forcing the police to be the um, to be the uh, first responders uh, for the mentally ill. Yeah, so you, you have this situation where uh, the mentally ill are um, just being left to fend for themselves. So you have people like this guy who, look, I'm not saying he should necessarily be locked up in a mental hospital somewhere, like, permanently, but there is a middle ground. Um, for instance, New York City has something called Kendra's Law. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I think so. Um, Kendra's Law uh, came from a case in the late 90s where a psychotic schizophrenic, who had been trying to get treatment, uh, this guy Charles Goldstein pushed a woman named Kendra Webdale into the f- into a speeding train in the subway. Um, and look, he con- he conceded. I mean, he, he was totally out of his mind. And he'd been seeking help, huh. I-, I believe. I Actually, I don't remember all the details of you know, like his case. But um, essentially, Kendra's, Kendra's law is the first in a series of state laws nationally called uh, assisted outpatient treatment. Basically, that man... They, where people who are judged to be a danger to themselves or others can be mandated to follow a, a, a course of psychiatric treatment. Um, basically saying, if you don't take your medicine and call your social worker and do all the things you're supposed to do, um, we will commit you to a facility. We will take, take over. And, and just that threat actually works. Yes. Um, this has been proven to work. It sounds great because there there becomes an accountability there, and the question is who administers that. Um, the state actually, you know, th- there's been a lot written on this, and it it actually um, has been shown to help. But you mean by the state, you mean uh, like uh, a mental hospital, or or the, there's a medical professional who's medical professional. They have a caseworker so, yes, who visits them, that's and, a, okay. exactly right, and they have to check in, and if there's found to be non-compliant, they can be, um, you know, then the police can come and take them away and so forth. And whose responsibility is it to make this recommendation or to notice this person to begin with? Because they probably won't come voluntarily. Uh, family members can call, uh, you know, the police, the police can get involved, mental health professionals can do it. I mean, it's all collaborative effort between the police, the mental health mm. establishment, the yeah. judge family. I mean, usually that's how it happens. But as we've seen with collaborative efforts, there's no accountability there either because, you know, why didn't you? Why didn't you? And that's why Deborah Danners uh, was still uh, walking around being a menace and, and swinging bats at cops. Deborah Danner would have been a, a perfect candidate for assisted outpatient treatment. That, that That's correct. Okay. Um, so, so how come, uh, I wonder if under Kendra's law, this Emmanuel guy who reached for the gun in order to, you know, uh, get some attention paid to this what seems like a pretty small uh you know case here with, with this with this woman that, that he was there to see i mean right how how does one is this reported is this something that we can know is there a public record or um should we I, get involved <laughs> I, I don't know that we should necessarily get involved i mean if you want i guess we could go down there and um you know wave signs around uh I'm not sure what the uh, the case is with this guy. That pro- usually they would report it in the papers if he had been, um, you know, under psychiatric treatment or if he's currently under it or mm-hmm. if he's been hospitalized or if he was non-compliant with his medications. And but as it stands, he's just out on bail. And uh, well, th- they did say that he's on that he's, um, uh, he's under the care at a hospital in Brooklyn. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, so best to him, I be, hope. Best, best of luck, sir. I hope the voices in your head, if they tell you to eat lunch, that it's a, a healthy lunch. <laughs> Mr. Emmanuel is one of our most loyal listeners. Now, police are hunting for the man uh, who snuck up behind an MTA collection, collecting agent and tried to pull his gun out of his holster in an L train station. His name is Rodney Duncan, 24. He lunged at the 47-year-old agent as he guarded an MTA MetroCard vending machine. Uh, I've seen, we've seen those guys. Uh, of course. Yeah, they're they're changing out the uh, money. They're sort. It's sort of like in a casino when you see these guys coming. Right. And I always walk by. Uh, I don't even have my phone in my hand. My hands are up. You know. I, right. I, I really right. try to make it clear that I'm. I'm not going to rob the uh, <laughs> the, the 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 token collector guy. Yeah. Yeah, because they they're looking at everybody. You know. That's fascinating because I I've always wondered about these guys. Um, there's always the one guy, you know, changing the. Um, Taking the money out of the machine, and mm-hmm. then the other guy with the bulletproof vest and the revolver. It is a two-man job. Uh, standing there, guarding. And so, that's interesting. Someone tried to grab his gun. He went for it. He didn't get it. He fought him off. The collection ag- collecting agent fought him off. I keep saying collection agent, but that's, this mm. isn't a guy that calls your home. No. He's a collecting agent. He was unable to catch the would-be robber when he fled into the station. So... He got away, but they somehow, I guess they know who he is. Uh, his name is De- Rodney Duncan, 24-year-old man, 185 pounds, brown eyes, black hair, uh, last seen wearing a black shirt, black sweatpants, and black sneakers. I wonder, was he trying to rob the guy getting the money out, or did he just want the gun? You know, who knows? You know? It's... Uh, it's hard to say. I I think that uh, he certainly would have. Uh, say he did take the gun, he would probably shoot the the guy who's going to be trying to get it back right away. Right. So once you do that, there's money laying there. You might as well take it. I wonder how much money is at stake in these in a case like this. Like how much money goes into one of those uh, MetroCard machines before they empty it out? That's a good question. A lot of people play with cards, and a lot of people. Um, is this like one of those bank robbery jobs where you're gonna? Kill kill two people and get away with six hundred dollars. Probably, I mean, like even if it's even if it's six thousand dollars, you know, I mean, right. you're killing a couple of guys, uh, throwing your life away. The guy's twenty four. I mean, uh, there's so many other ways you could make it, you know, without without grabbing. It for seems a gun. like you're selling yourself short. Yeah. If you're like, okay, I'm twenty four, I've got sixty years left on this earth, mm. but I have no chance of doing anything else besides um, this this totally <laughs> spontaneous, weird uh, effort to get a few hundred dollars. I mean, the spontaneity is the key, because I think it must be a, a, a very much an impulsive thing. Yes. You know? But the thing is, those guys are always, I mean, like you said, there's one guy, he's bent over looking into the machine, and then there's a guy standing there, but he says he snuck out behind him, so I don't know how he got behind him. They always seem to be facing right, out. Right, right. So this guy, must he must have caught him in a moment of... Uh, like an unguarded moment. Yes, exactly. A startling 12th wrongfully convicted man has been released after spending half his life behind bars for a murder, which he's always affirmed he did not commit. Now, they didn't say that it was a murder he didn't commit in the lead. They said that he's always affirmed right. that he didn't commit. Uh, regardless, he didn't get a fair trial. 43-year-old Jabbar Washington was locked up in connection with a botched robbery of a crack den in Brownsville. Oh. Brownsville, 1718. 
and it uh, resulted in the shooting of six people and one dead. So it takes balls to, to go and hold up a crackdown, I guess. Uh, but at the time, it was the Wild West, uh, apparently. What, what year was this? This was the crime uh, happened? It, the, the crime, well, it, his trial was in 80, uh, excuse me, 97. And I think that the, uh, I think it was a little sooner. Obviously, it was earlier than that. But I think it was like a year or two, maybe two years earlier than that. Mm. It might have even been 93. I was looking back at some of the, uh, you know, just some information about that era, uh, and it was just, uh, it was, it was okay. I'm gonna, I'm reading this from the article. The drug that made its users blind with desperation for more and more, uh, and ever more of it had arrived in the city in 1985 from Los Angeles, where cocaine dealers had perfected a way to turn expensive powdered coke into inexpensive small rocks. Uh the glory days. <laughs> that was back when, yeah, the glory days. They did this by adding baking powder and water to the cocaine, and then boiling the mixture into pellets that gave off a cracking sound when smoked. Well, I guess that's why they call it crack. I, I guess I that's never, where it came from. Yeah, they enabled them to transform a $1,000 ounce of powder into 280 uh, 100-milligram vials of crack that could be peddled for $10 a piece, $2,800. So you can more than double your money. Uh, way more. I mean, because it's like a thousand dollar. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really. I could see the temptation to do that. It seems like if you were a um, prudent crack user, you would just buy a bunch of powdered cocaine and um, <laughs> do the uh, engineering yourself. Yeah, the, I guess that's the oxymoron of it. The prudent crack user. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, it turns out thousands of citizens were robbed. People were desperate. Uh, crack addicts swarmed across the whole town, and uh, say, uh, here's here's an example. Uh, dozens were killed, including cops. Nineteen people died simply because they happened to walk into the crossfires. Warring dealers opened up on one another, and uh, it w by several measures, the city was brought to its knees. It was the worst year ever for murder. F nearly 40% of the 1,896 homicides were drug-related, meaning mainly crack-related. It was the worst year ever for total violent crimes. What? This was 93, 90? This right here was 85. 85. This is the oh, dawn okay. of the crack era. Yeah. Plus uh, robbery and assault. Right. The violent crime total, 152,600, meant that New York has many victims as Syracuse had people. So just to put it in perspective, we had, less, I think, th around 300 murders maybe last year. Yeah, even less. Yeah, and uh, and in that year, 1,896 people That's killing for crack. Uh, violent crime was 44% higher in 1988 than in 1985. Wow. So it, it just uh, took off and, and started ruining everything. Child abuse and neglect uh, petitions, they shot up 19%. And they were up 156% since 1985. Some kids never got a chance to be rescued. Uh, record 133 died of abuse and neglect. More than 5,000 born with severe ailments, crack, ba uh, ailments, crack babies. Mm. The youth abused the old as well. Attacks against the elderly by youthful relatives shot up 44%. Yeah, but that was, that was justified. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, after all this other neglect. Uh, they oh, had right, to, sure. Fuck, it, it's... It's 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 retaliation. It's, it's probably self defense. Uh, people, Could be. they Could were be. you know, uh, even people who didn't uh, experience the violence paid another way as car theft increased twenty five percent. Burglary went up only six percent. But it says the reason why it didn't go up much is because they weren't even bothering to file police reports anymore. 
believing quite accurately that crime swamp police didn't have time to deal with small property matters. So really a mess. Uh, and uh, South Jamaica was where eventually two cops were killed. Uh, one was a transit cop and one was a uh, burn, a rookie. And that's like sort of a famous one. And, and these kind of like, the cops just put a lot of co uh, policemen out there and, and they started policing real, real, real hard. Yeah. Uh, everything short of martial law, uh, probably, which is fine at the time. Anyway, uh, but they also note that crack just kind of burned out. It became uncool. Kids started to look at crackheads as, oh, that's, you know, not a good thing. That's what eventually happens. Yeah, but let me ask you, uh, like as with pleated pants... <laughs> or, um, the the, the cargo shorts, yeah, things like that. With the yeah, uh, is crack gonna become cool again? When's it gonna come back in? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I think when the economy's bad, you know, because uh -huh. it's a cheap drug, it's probably something that people switch to when they when they're on the way down. And I think a lot of people now they hit recovery, so they their bottom is higher than crack. Yeah, they're high bottom people. That would be my that would be my guess to put it in recovery terms, but that's still okay. So yeah, you're saying that crack will come back when the economy's bad. But my question is, when will it be cool? <laughs> I mean, it'll probably never be quite as cool. You know what? We'll never twist again like we did last summer. Okay, okay. Uh, but uh, this uh, guy who was convicted in the, in the shooting of six people and one dead. Uh, his name is Jabbar Washington. So uh, you could see how desperate the police were to get a handle on what was going on. Right. Uh, and and Lou Scarcella was one such detective. Now, uh, twelve of his cases have been, you know, the, they've been released. These guys who were convicted of murders, they started looking at seventy cases. Now, this guy had been serving twenty five years to life as a result of what would appear to be a Brady violation on the part of the prosecution during his trial in nineteen ninety seven. The jury was repeatedly told that one victim had picked him out of a lineup. The jury was not informed that the witness later clarified that she was pointing him out as someone she knew from the building. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You think they could have done that right on the spot, you know? Say, no, 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 he's, I know him from the, the you know, wouldn't you think that that would be the way that would go? Uh, not one of the robbers. And, and whenever there's like a simple solution that doesn't happen, it, it kind of makes me question, like, is this really somebody saying that, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. something, something's fishy. Sure. But that witness died. Lisa Todd became unavailable for further questioning after she was murdered in 2006. Oh, no. Well, the discrepancy was discovered by the Brooklyn DA's uh, Conviction Review Unit, which has been probing homicide cases of retired NYPD Detective Louis Scarcella. Scarcella's investigation methods and suspect lineups began to face increased scrutiny following the release of David Ranta, who had been convicted of murder. Another, this, this is the start of a lot of cases being turned over was David Ranta's case. Ranta had served 23 years in prison for the killing of a Brooklyn rabbi, Rabbi Wurzberger, who was shot in the forehead during a botched diamond robbery in 1990. And that was the peak of the, that was, I believe, the, the, yeah. the, the murder year. That was uh, the most murders uh, that have ever been committed in New York City were 1990. Yeah, like 2,400 people or something like yes. that? Yes. His conviction was vacated in 2013. After a witness revealed he had been coached by Scarcella to pick Ranta out of a lineup, and two more people uh, also admitted they'd lied about Ranta in exchange for privileges behind bars, also orchestrated by Scarcella. Like, um, 
what kind of privileges? Like an extra roll of toilet paper or <laughs> well, a I, soup? Well, they're putting a guy in prison for life. I hope it was at least a carton of cigarettes. <laughs> right, okay. The first witness was only 13 at the time. Uh, oh. He was told by uh, a detective to, quote, pick the guy with the big nose out of the lineup. Insult to injury. Was that, like, anti-Semitic? I think that uh, Ranta was not Jewish. Yeah, I, I, he, he, he had a mullet. <laughs> There's a picture of him when he's young. Really? Yeah, he, he, he had a powerful mullet, and, and a lot of he was wearing a sleeveless shirt. He looks very much like something. There's a guy on The Simpsons that kind of looks like that, maybe Snake or whatever. Uh, in 1996, a woman also came forward saying that her husband had confessed to the murder uh, two months before dying in a car crash himself. Oh. But a judge found her to be uh, not credible. Okay. Due to her being a drug addict. Uh-huh. So this, uh, again, a crack coming in to inform the story. Now, following Ranta's release, Brooklyn DA Charles Hines ordered a review of 50 murder cases. And that number has grown to 70 cases under Kenneth Thompson and acting DA Eric Gonzalez, who is serving out Thompson's uh, term following his death last October. Right. So I found a Wikipedia page for David Ranta, which for some reason uh, came up in German. Okay. And so I use Google to translate, and I'm going to read from that now. David Ranta, uh, circa 1985 in USA, is a U.S. American printer and a victim of a jail sentence who was 23 years innocent of a non-committed murder in prison. Hmm. His case attracted worldwide attention and is considered a great legal scandal in the history of the U.S. because of its tragedy and dimension. No, it's not. Not really. <laughs> I mean, it should be. Uh, David Ranta was temporarily a printer and father of three young children. In the time of his arrest and condemnation, however, he was employed, he was unemployed, and had had to deal with the police beforehand because of small drug-related injuries. On 28 February 1990, the Hasidic rabbi, Cheskel Wurzberger, a survivor of the Holocaust was shot in Williamsburg by a fleeing diamonds. Hmm. Shot by a fleeing diamonds. Uh, the thief wanted his car as a curfew. Uh, the murder of the rabbi attracted quite a lot of public attention throughout the United States. The perpetrator confessed to his wife two days later that he had murdered the rabbi. Well, we don't know that he was the perpetrator, but we can. Right. It's, that's, a, that's quite a leap. I should make a notation on this. He did not, however, place himself at the police, but instead fled before him and died in a chase. I love the way it's phrased. Just the language itself is yes. so odd, you know. Yes, yes. Under the pressure of public pressure to present an offender, the completely innocent David Ranta was presented by the police as a perpetrator. He had admitted a confession, but it is now assumed that this had come under pressure. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Witnesses were bribed and evidence destroyed. There was no evidence against Ranta. However, Ranta was sentenced to 37 years imprisonment by a court in a high-security prison in Buffalo, New York. There he was imprisoned until the beginning of 2013, more than 23 years. When his case was rescheduled by the judiciary and Ranta was released on 21 March 2013, there was a half-hearted apology from the responsible judge. There was no excuse from the investigator. And he reproached himself for making any mistakes. So that's like a contradiction huh. there. While he was in custody, the children grew up, and his two parents had died and could not experience the release of their son. On the day of his release, Ranta was received by his wife, whom he had married in custody, and his youngest 25-year-old daughter. 
Two days after his release, he suffered a severe heart attack and had to go to the hospital for treatment. Possibly the excitement of dismissal and the experience of detention were responsible for the infarction. And that's what happened. He sued the city of New York, uh, Ranta did, for around, he wanted $150 million. He got 6.4. And, uh, and, and that's the way that went for, you know, Ranta uh, went home and uh, I guess, you know, whatever, just felt good for a day. The next day he had a steak dinner. Later that night had a heart attack. And he's still around, um, which yeah. is good. It, it, you know, what a, what a case, 23 years. That's a long time. Apparently, uh, right before he got out of jail, he um, he uh, he asked where he might buy a Moody Blues CD for his Walkman. <laughs> really, where are you getting that? From a New York Times article about him. Oh, that's see, New York Times will occasionally pull some really good details. Sure, down. sure, what, sure. And that was uh, well, his real. Are you joking? No. Are you joking? <laughs> that's that's real. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're in prison, you don't have an iPod. You don't have a... He really managed to take care of that Sony Walkman all that time. You know what? There's guys in prison who are really... Who, who develop an expertise at fixing things like Walkman and Walkman and uh, tape recorders mm. with, with paper clips and glue. Um, so, yeah, he kept it, he kept it together. Man. And and he he came where out, he where can I buy a Moody Blues CD? Well, <laughs> let's see. We can drive around yard sales in Long Island, <laughs> or deepdiscount.com. Well, I mean, do you think that uh, that 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 Scarcella at any point? I guess this is twelve cases that he's just in, been involved in. Now that the, the lawyers who were doing this, they didn't necessarily think that. Uh, that the lawyer that that ran that excuse me that uh, Scarcella is uh, 100% responsible for this. He kind of put it on on the DA, the ADA at the time. So, as, like I said, they were desperate to lock people up, and uh, they cut a few corners. It seems, and some people got locked up wrong. I don't know much about Scarcella. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like he, you know, just wanted to get arrests. Good cop for that. I mean, if that's what he wanted. Well, I guess so. I mean, but I, I think part of being a good cop is, uh, you know, making sure that you're not um, putting completely innocent people in prison. I think that he probably did everything by the book the way the book was written at the time. Is that so? Really? That, he, was, he wasn't like... I uh, think he thinks he did everything by the book. Like including saying, getting witnesses to lie? Pick the guy with the big nose. Yeah, pick, pick like telling a thirteen-year-old like who 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 to pick. Well, let's say he was really sure that he did it, and he just was wrong in this case. I mean, look. Yeah, he, but that's he at not, least took it, him off the street for not, a few years. It's not. <laughs> it's, that's no, true. I agree. I agree. I mean, like the idea of being locked up and being innocent is is just an absolute nightmare. I can't even imagine if there's anything that might lead you to suicide, it would be that. Can I tell you though? One time, um, I I was at like I was listening to Ron Cuby. Lecture now. Ron Cuby is like a huge civil libertarian, mm. protege of uh, William Kunstler. You know, he takes on all of these crazy cases, like uh, you know terrorists, and you know he, he he's a big civil liberties guy. Yes, and he asked the audience, he's like, "What percentage of people in prison right now would you imagine to be like actually innocent?" And he polled the audience, and people were like, "Oh, one half." Someone said two thirds. Three quarters, whatever. Two thirds, wow. Or maybe fifteen percent. He's like, 
He's like, I would say that about 99.8% of the people in prison are actually guilty. You know. Wow. Yeah. His point is that it doesn't matter. Everybody still deserves vigorous representation because the resources of the state are so enormous compared to the resources of the individual that the individual needs a great deal of protection. Yes. Um, when it comes to uh, their liberty. Well, the stakes are as high as stakes come, you know, yeah. for, for your personal liberty and, and to be locked up for the rest of your life. Right. Uh, so it's a good thing that a guy like that is out there. I, he probably takes a lot of heat, I'm sure. I know you're out there somewhere. <laughs> what is Is that the Moody Blues? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Three men have been arrested in connection with a brutal attack of a middle-aged woman during uh, which the victim was forced to take off her clothes and perform oral sex at gunpoint. The woman had just left church, the Celestial Church of Christ, to be exact, on Liberty Avenue around 1015. This is in Queens. And uh, 1015 in the morning? 1015 at night. Okay, at night. Yeah, yeah. Two men pointed a, two men pointed a gun at her. And took her phone, six dollars, and a metro card. Wow! As she walked down the street, trying to get uh, home from church, the men led her down the street to one fifty oh six Beaver Road, where they were joined by others. Now, two of the men watched while others pummeled the woman, holding a gun to her head, forced her to take off her clothes, and perform oral sex on three of them. Now, uh, just curious. I mean, uh, but do you think that? Gunpoint oral sex. Do you think that's going to enhance the oral sex, or do you think it's going to be a distraction? For whom? For the, uh, you know, for the person for the, give, giving it. Well, yeah. I mean, is it going to bring out the best, or is it going to, you know, I, I think it depends on the individual. Because, like, if I, if I, first of all, I'd have to have a gun in my head uh, to. Uh, but as far as like, if say a wait, woman, wait, say you a would woman have to have a gun to your head to perform oral sex on someone. Well, uh, on, a on, on, a street, on a guy in the street, on a guy in the street, she oh. walks up. Yeah, on a oh, woman I even. <laughs> I don't do it with anybody. <laughs> like with, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, but like, uh, yeah. Otherwise, uh, yeah. Say, say, let's just for the sake of argument, say it. Say it is a woman. Say it's a woman that I don't particularly want to yeah. uh, engage with. Right. And she's like, uh, okay, do it. Do it, yeah. And I'm like, I don't Man. want to. Yeah. And then she takes out a gun. She's like, do it. I think that it might just not be that. Bring great. out my A game, actually. Oh, I think, I think out, out of the fear, uh, and uh, you know, honestly, I can't do it bad. I think that's what it is. I, I'm just good at it. Oh, and, and okay. That's, that's all there is to it. So it doesn't matter if there's a gun or not. Really. Gun, gun or not, but the gun's not going to take me out of it. Is what I oh, think. okay. I don't that's think. Good. I, don't I think. would think if I were some like. Woman in her fifties, like some church-going woman, and a bunch of teenagers were like pummeling me and beating me up and stripping me and putting a gun into my face. Uh-huh. I I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't sound like the makings of any kind of erotic uh, no erotic fantasy for uh, no. Know, it does for not. Her. In fact, and it, and it doesn't sound like uh, it's well certainly not for me. No. Uh, and and it and now uh, the fun's over for these guys too. Now they scattered. Uh, when it was over, uh, and uh, they left her naked in the street. Good Lord. Uh, I mean, and they caught these kids. How old? Are they? They're fairly young, right? Yes, they are young. Uh, they were They were eventually called. The woman was taken to Elmer's Hospital. She was treated and released. So the woman is, you know, physically okay. According to the pastor, the woman said that, uh, said that the, the men wanted to rape her, and she tried to dissuade them by telling them she had HIV. Hmm. So I, I, I guess... Uh, a used condom was found at the scene. It's being tested for genetic evidence. And, 
I, you think about that, you know, it's, it seems like that would be a deterrent, but, uh, you know. <clears throat> well, but the problem is. What if he goes, um, me too? Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's okay. The, the other problem is they're, they're really, I mean, I don't know how up on, like, their CDC statistics these kids are, mm. but um, there's, there's really a very low incidence of female to male genital transmission of <laughs> HIV. So I don't know that... But would you take the chance? She should have said... um, Like herpes, I have have gonorrhea. I have, yeah. Uh, Something a little bit easier to catch. Uh, uh, So ladies, uh, pick a disease like um, leprosy. You know, right. something that, that, that will make their dick rot and fall off. Yeah, yeah. Which is what they deserve. Now, police were eventually called, like I said. And now, according to the pastor, uh, she went to her church, and, and uh, he found her crying. And, and the, the pastor began, you know, they took steps from there. Now, uh, as to the uh, suspects, cops followed a tip to a nearby group home. I'm assuming the tip came from their eyes when they noticed there was a group home. Nearby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, police also found two fake guns uh, that they believe were used in the robbery and sexual assault. They took the three men into custody at the group home. They later arrested them after looking at surveillance video recovered from the scene. So they took them into custody and then arrested them. Two separate uh, things, apparently. Sure. Uh, the, the Queen's Special Victims Unit was questioning the suspects who were identified late Thursday night as 20-year-old Brandon Walker as in Walker down the street, 19-year-old Julissus uh, Janelle, okay. as in Vaginelle, mm-hmm. and 17-year-old Justin Williams, as in wear a condom just in case. Uh, the men were arraigned Friday on charges of sexual abuse and other charges as, as police continue to search for a fourth suspect. And once taken into custody, one of the men, Justin Williams, allegedly admitted to being part of the attack. Okay. Claiming he served as lookout, so no one interrupted. But we got a little more from today's New York Post. What do we have? What we have now is that he's not saying just that he was the lookout. He says uh, that, that he, uh, well, uh, first of all, the New York Post uh, headline is, You don't have a prayer, pal. Churchgoer, assault suspect. I am religious. So he's uh, saying he's a Christian. And oh. that uh, he, would, he, he says it would have made a difference. If I'd known she was a churchgoer, that would have made a difference. Aha! That kind of sounds like one of those, um, one of those, uh, like Kenyan Al Qaeda guys who, when they were going around massacring everybody in the, the Nairobi mall, they would ask people if they were Muslim, and if they weren't, then they would spare them. This could be like, like a, one of these cases that, like the counter case, right? Showing how Christians are just as evil. Well, yeah, in a sense, I guess, if you give, although this guy's hardly on a, I think he got got more religious as uh, as the arrest went yeah. forward, yeah, as, yeah, okay. as his time uh, in, in uh, custody <laughs> increased, because, but he, he will, he said the group's plan was just to pull their fake glizzies, that's slang for guns, it points out, Great. never heard glizzies, and do another stick up. It says, after all, he had joined in three other robberies with his pals at their South Street Youth Homeless Shelter, he claimed. And it wasn't just women or anything, he said, of, of uh, their oh. usual targets. He said, it was anybody that was around. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, hey, we <laughs> equal opportunity. Yeah, that's, this was not that's a terrific. hate thing. <laughs> no, that's terrific. <laughs> we, and, and when they robbed her, they got $6? Is that what you said? $6, a Metro card, and a phone. I'd be curious to know. It would be interesting to do, like, a uh, statistical analysis of 
like all robberies, all bur- like what is the median um, amount of money? Mm. That's yeah. So like stolen. average this out, like like yeah. between four guys, you've got six dollars a metro card, however much on is let's let's be generous and say it was a twenty dollar metro card. Uh, that hadn't been used yet, and a phone uh, that was, I mean, what, what could they resell it for? $30. Say $30. So less than $100, four guys, whatever their sentences are, and then do it by the day. Well, Like how the, much they, they, they netted. Okay, but th- there's that. But I was also thinking about, like, look at all burglaries and robberies across the city. How much money are is netted in each one? What is the average? That's Probably a good like idea. Probably like $40. But, I mean. That's a good idea. Because not, they're, they're not getting taxed on this. I mean, that's right. what you say we could tax it then, right? Well, I'm really just thinking, even if you get away with it, crime doesn't really pay. See, it doesn't pay. It doesn't pay. It's, it's just not, not just, that much money. Not even figuratively. It doesn't pay. Uh, that, that would be a very... You know what? If you did that, you might change the fucking world. You might, you might actually be able to finally convince people, listen... Now, what if, what if you do it and it turns out, wait a second. Oh, my God. It's, re- it's really <laughs> lucrative. <laughs> just, just keep that to yourself, then. But Don't uh, publish. Now, this guy, it, was, uh, it wasn't just women, he said. Anybody who was around. So on Tuesday night, he's, it's a quote. He said, I thought it was just going to be what we usually do. First, the thugs robbed the woman of her phone. $6 and a Metro card, police said. Then his pal and co-defendant Brendan, Brandon Walker escalated things. Williams said Walker's lawyer, uh, that's what Williams said, Walker's lawyer couldn't be reached. They led the woman down the street and behind a truck. There, Brandon told her to take off her clothes, Williams said. We'll kill you if you don't, Williams said, his pal added. Police said two of the men beat the woman, and they took turns forcing her to give them oral sex. This, uh, what a nightmare. What a nightmare. They're, they're very predatory here, these guys, and young. And, and this is the kind of thing that I feel a lot of people excuse you know, if they're on a, on a certain side of the political spe- spectrum by saying, just out doing dumb stuff, just... But a p- bunch of knuckleheads. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, this, to me, this is evil. It was an attempted rape gone wrong. <laughs> Williams wouldn't speak directly about the sex attack, saying only, I went first because I had the glizzy. It's, to me, it's remarkable holding on to the... Uh, the, to the to, slang, yeah, you know, in, in a moment like this, but, but when you're young, you know, and now this is where, since the defiance of this woman, you know, and, and her strength, because afterward the terrified yet defiant woman turned to her to the her other young men uh, tormentors, and she said, "Who's next?" Williams recalled. How about that? Oi, that's like. That that sends a signal, you know what I mean? You're not beating me down here, you know. Now, um, uh, Williams, uh, to me, it does. Wait, that you're saying that she was by saying who's next? She's saying that like, you know, I'm I'm stronger than this. Oh, I get it. Yeah, I'm resilient. Okay, you're not breaking my spirit here. Let's just get this shit over with. In that sense, her tormentors became her mentors. <laughs> Became her mentors, <laughs> and her, her mentees. Well, in terms of in terms of like testing her spiritually, I guess so. Uh, well, they say that that you learn from your from your enemies. You know, you learn from your yeah. Tr- yeah so, uh, I guess in a sense, uh, 
we've all learned something here. Now, William said he didn't remember seeing the woman uh, get beaten, but conceded that might have happened after oh, yeah, he left. He sure. said, I was the first to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, sure, sure, sure. I, I agree. You know, he admitted the attack was, quote, messed up. And here we have... We oh, hear, he, he admits that, okay. He, he admits it was messed up. Now, um, I guess in a Christian sense, <laughs> since she was a church-going woman, yeah. but... You know, we hear so much about victim blaming. You know, that that's something that that is like it's it's really on the tip of society's collective tongue when it comes to the subject of rape, I think. Uh and and this is the truest case of victim blaming. This to me is what victim blaming looks like, this next statement that he makes. But ask why he did what he did, Williams gave this answer. Why did you do what he do? He said, She took her clothes off. I see. <laughs> There's a that's pretty clear cut, right? I mean, right. To, look, I mean, she, she took her clothes off and started blowing us and stuff. Yeah. Okay. What are we supposed to do about right, it? Right. Right. Um, well, I get. Yeah. I mean, what what is he saying that he he sh- they she seduced them? <laughs> I guess. Uh, <laughs> maybe they. Yeah. Uh, Jesus. At that point, they're we had too no old. Choice. Right? Yeah, she raped them. Is what it, is what yeah, it turns out. Sure. You know, yeah. the problem with victim blaming, I think it's reflective of the mind of the rapist. I don't think it's just an excuse. I think it's like uh, when you're really blaming the victim, you're not taking responsibility for what you did. You really don't think there's anything wrong with it deep down. Mm-hmm. The guy says, you know, he describes it as messed up, you know. Right. Oh, I shouldn't have. We, if we had known she was coming from church, we wouldn't have done that. Sure. As if it would be kind of okay right. otherwise. Uh, this guy misses the point on what exactly is wrong with the crime. Yes, you know? I think basically what he's saying, like, look, if I'd known that I'd be in jail, I wouldn't have done this. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Who do you, what do you think I am? Yeah, yeah they, I, I don't. I don't buy his remorse. I don't really, um, you know. I'm not going to judge his faith. I'm going to leave that to God. It's none of my business. Only God can judge me. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say that this guy is not a. Uh, he certainly doesn't seem repentant to me. He doesn't seem repentant. I I dearly hope that these guys go to prison for a really long time. So do I. And yeah, it'll be, it'll be. See now, where's Lou Scarcella when you need him? To make sure of it, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, I, I think they have all the evidence they need. And um, look, all I the evidence so. I need is right there, hearing him say, she took her clothes off. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's the very picture of non-repentance. I, I, would, I would agree with you completely. Their bail was set at uh, $500,000 bond, $250,000 cash bail on the sex charges, and then you know, a smaller uh, for the robbery. So... Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have more on on all the circumstances surrounding that brutal uh, gang rape. I, I mean, can't imagine it's actually going to go to trial, though. Don't you think that they'll all probably plead guilty plead? for something yeah. smaller? Yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe they will. Uh, yeah, I guess they probably will. I mean, it sounds like they were all pretty much caught virtually in the act. Someone's already, you know, admitted it. But then again, you know, I mean, they just came over to the group on what if that was an illegal search? What if they didn't have a tip? What if they just, you know, what if they get Ron Kuby on their side and he goes, you know what? You guys just walked right into this group home. Did you have any way of knowing that these guys were in right, here? Right, and then right. they find some little hole in the case. Could and, be. I mean, Could be another one of those um, those Brady violations. Well, I guess that wouldn't be a Brady violation. <laughs> well, it could. I mean, they, they, they'll find a way uh, to look. I mean, 
who knows, this may be the new Central Park Five. <laughs> You're right. These <laughs> guys could be the new, these guys could be like, we could be seeing like a HBO documentary about how awesome they are in a few years. Yeah, very well. And they'll be rich men. And, and, uh, and you know what? Still not happy with the system. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right? That's the thing. It doesn't appease anybody. Well, we have to go now, and uh, I'll be talking to you again soon, I hope, Seth. Okay, uh, Pat. And uh, thanks for, for being here. And thank you. Thank you for listening to New York City Crime Report. Near the end of last year, I had the opportunity to interview a retired detective of the NYPD, the 41st Precinct in the South Bronx, known as Fort Apache. It was the most violent and dangerous precinct in the most crime-ridden community in the United States, 1970 to 1984. He made over 2,000 arrests, including 105 off-duty arrests, had been in 15 gun battles, and had shot and killed four men, all of which were justified. He was like a law enforcement animal, more or less unleashed on the chaos of the time and place to confront the criminal element on behalf of good people, poor and desperate people to silence the gunshots, clean up the streets, to somehow tame the wild violence of an urban jungle and restore order to a community. More than ready for the street level fight. He was energized by it. He did his job and lived his life as a cop with every waking moment taking danger off the streets so that decency could return. Now 68 years old, his name is Ralph Friedman and he took the time to share his experience and tell some of his stories from that now almost unimaginable time. Retired NYPD detective, street warrior, Ralph Friedman. From everything that I've read uh, about you, you're driven to do police work. Uh, you almost had a higher authority or something. Something like that. Yeah. I, I loved my job, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was almost laid off myself. Um, I had to prove to the city that I had two years prior city time, which uh, I did. I was a police trainee because I got called in to do I passed the test in 67, and I got called in 68, 1968. I was too young. I was 19. Mm. So I had to spend two years. You had to be 21 to be a police officer at the time. And uh, I did two years inside doing um, non-law enforcement work. I did fingerprinting. I answered phones. I went to the new 9-11 system when it was invented in 1968 and a half. Um, I did uh, taking complaints. I did all kinds of inside work. I was raring to go when I was uh, turning 21, and I just I loved the job. To this day, I'm retired 33 years. I still miss it. Yeah. You still consider yourself kind of on duty? Well, if I saw a serious felony, if I saw someone getting hurt, robbed, or injured, I would take action. Uh, it hasn't happened. I, I've, I have done it over the years. Yeah. And I always pull over if I see a police officer working by himself, you know, which is common outside the city. In New York, it's pretty much uh, only highway patrol, you know, the highway units. And if I see them pulling someone over, I slow down. I, I make sure they're okay. Uh -huh. Sometimes I'll pull up and get out, uh -huh. identify myself. Yeah. You know, it's, it's dangerous work for a guy to be doing alone. Nowadays, uh, and I spoke to a woman named Heather McDonald about this. She wrote a book, uh, The War on Cops. She, she coined the term the Ferguson Effect, uh, to uh, describe what goes on now with police, that there's almost, uh, there, it's possible there's a little reticence uh, between, uh, uh, for, the, for the police to, you know, take action or to pull the trigger or to... Uh... Well, it's becoming more of a reactive policing instead of proacting. Mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, it seems like everybody's against the police today. I mean, 
you need the police. It's the thin blue line. And uh, they don't seem to be appreciated right now. And you see them, if you take an action, you're putting everything on the line. You know, like you used to have bosses and politicians and a city that backed you up. Right now, it doesn't seem like they will. Yeah. You know, uh, they'll throw you under the bus. Do you think uh, now uh, in... In 1984, nobody had a camera, uh, so at the ready. My whole, my whole career, there was no uh, cameras, no cell phones. It was even before beepers. <laughs> right. You know, we had nothing. You know, today you you they're, they're filming every. You get out to get a slice of pizza, there's like a hundred cameras. You know, seeing what you're doing. Yeah, that's got to be annoying. Yeah, and, and it hurts the public because you know every police officer's uh, you know worried about taking an action. Sure. I wouldn't use the word scared because they, they put their lives on the line all the time. Sure. But, you know, you're being uh, micromanaged and uh, everything with the political correctness and uh, mm. all this kind of stuff is, you know, it starts to weigh on a police officer's actions. If he has to think about what he's doing, he's not letting his training kick in and do a, reflective, a, re a reflex action. Yes. In police work, you never know what's going to happen. I was once working uniform. Mm -hmm. I was... Uh, I was young then. I was in a uniform, and I just got into a car. It was like 1971, and it was late night, you know, and we uh, pulled over this car. It didn't look right. You know, it was a big Lincoln, and they were cruising the street. It wasn't the right speed. It was just something wasn't right. So we pull over, and we get out of the car, and uh, we left the nightsticks and the uh, – it was like a routine stop, so we left the nightsticks and the radio in the car, you know, and uh, – Get over there. I ask him to step out of the car. I ask him to identify themselves, license, registration. The guy gets out of the car, and I told him not to get out of the car. And now I said, uh, he, we, some words were spoken. Next thing I know, the guy starts swinging on me. And these were, the other guy got out also and started fighting with my partner. These were two monster guys. I mean, they were like well-built football players, right? And uh, I was in great shape at the time. I was bodybuilding. I was in great shape. I'm telling you, they were kicking the shit out of us. I mean, we were getting our ass handed to us. And I remember my partner was on the other side of the car, so I couldn't fully see him, but he was taking a beating. I was getting a beating, and I was trying to crawl back to the radio car to get my nightstick or at least get to the radio. And I got to the radio, and I called in for assistance, which is a 1013. And... Uh, then I got my stick, but I was still getting pummeled, man. I was getting my, my ass handed to me. That usually didn't happen, but it was happening. And when I heard those sirens then, yeah. that was the greatest feeling in the world, man. I tell you, the shootouts, they're usually over. And, you know, uh, you, one incident, I needed them right away because my partner was shot. And we had to get him to a hospital. Yeah. But in this incident, I really needed them immediately right then. I, I might have been killed then. I was taking such a bad beating with their fists, no weapons. What was with these guys? What were they doing? They wound up, I got a call, actually, about five years later from the FBI asking me about these guys. And I said, uh, oh, I remember the incident, man. They beat the balls off me, which doesn't <laughs> happen too often. And they said these guys, they were involved with, they were muscle for the, for the, um, for like the black construction workers. Yeah, where they go on the sites and muscle their way in, say you don't have enough diversity and you got to hire some blacks, you know, usually for non-no-show uh, jobs. And this was very common. This was in, back in the uh, 
mid to late seventies where they were muscling. They were trying. Uh, they were muscle for the uh, for the, the for their workers. Uh-huh. And the FBI was investigating them, and there was nothing else I could tell them except that uh, the guy could hit hard. Yeah, you know. Well, and then he, he's got no fear to attack a cop. They had no fear. He even fought with the office. They fought with the officers that responded, and the officers now were using nightsticks. They were still fighting back. Man, I, know, they took a beating though. That's that was, that's that's uh, just a really low degree of awareness of what, how to hit. So you you never know when you're stopping a car. Yeah. What you know what it could be. Uh, and and they uh what. I mean, fill it in for me. Did they just have a bad attitude? I mean, bad what? Attitude. Yeah, <laughs> they no respect like, for police and were willing to fight. And they had no, nothing illegal on them or anything like that? No. They're no. just like, ah, oh, we're getting pulled over. Let's start. Yeah, they didn't want to show their license or registration. They wanted to be belligerent. They wanted to fight. Yeah. Uh, you know, they might have had a few in them, and they uh, wanted to test it out. <laughs> it's a hired muscle. If we muscle, didn't get huh? assistance, that would have been the end of us. Oh, my God. Yeah. When That's... I heard those sirens then... That was music to my ears. Hear and see the whole interview on Compound Media. That's compoundmedia.com. You could get it. It's like $5 a month uh, if you do it for a year. You can also see that video on patreon.com. $5 a month also. And, you know, you get a bunch of other stuff there, too. Uh, compoundmedia.com and patreon.com. Uh, go to patreon.com slash patdixonnyc uh, to find out everything you need to know about becoming a patron. Thanks very much for your support. And on compoundmedia.com, this week you will see uh, my second interview with Ralph Friedman. That's uh, never been seen before, and you uh, <laughs> he has a lot to say. So my second interview with Ralph Friedman on compoundmedia.com. Thank you for listening to New York City Crime Report. Well, th- that's the thing, is there are a lot of um, psychotics, and there's a lot of people who've spent time in prison. Yeah, there are, and there's more and more these days. There's more and more. You know what it is? It's because of some of these horrible, horrible judges. You know, some of the judges... Have you read, have you read lately? There's a rash of judges who get paid when they're not working anymore because they're obese. I, I heard about this guy. There's three of them. Oh, three? There's three... Of these judges that I've read about just recently that uh, are absolutely worthless. Worthless, worthless judges. That's great. Uh, I will talk about that on the next episode. Yeah, one of them shits herself in court. Oh, dear. She was so fat, she couldn't walk up the three steps to get to her bench. And uh, so she retired. Okay. Or not retired, she took medical leave. Right. But while she was judging, before she got so fat that she was not, she has some kind of gastrointestinal disorder, and she would have gas <laughs> that made everybody sick. Oh, God. And one, I, I'm not kidding, there was a quote which said where someone who worked in the courthouse, a woman, she said she would have diarrhea running down her leg. And... She acted very arrogant about it. She said, there's a mess here. Someone needs to clean oh, this up. Oh, please. Come on. I am not kidding you. An obese judge who hasn't worked in years still collects the paycheck. The job also provides $65,000 worth of annual health benefits with the currently hospitalized Schollenberger, which, has been, which uh, she's been putting to good use. Aside from the alleged cronyism 
Uh, court workers were also troubled by a more immediate concern, a severe gastric distress problem that made itself apparent on the few occasions the judge made it into court. She would come in, and we would see the diarrhea running down her leg and on and uh, to the floor, one court worker said. She would soil the chair and then ask for a new one. This is a judge named uh, Schollenberger. Yeah, but where is this? This isn't New York City. Yes, it is. No, it's not. I just read over your shoulder. It said... Like the council member. It might be White Plains or something. Oh, oh, okay. But it's it's close enough. Can you look up Schollenberger? I want to see what, what uh, she looks like. I'm trying. Yeah, she is a detestable woman. Let me find the link. Uh, now, there are several judges who are doing a similar thing. Okay, that's another judge. Okay, I'm going to give the another judge, Ellen Schollenberger of suburban White Plains. Oh, okay. Landed a $175,000 seat, but her 400-pound weight prevented her from being able to climb the three steps to her courtroom bench. She's on a fully paid, indefinite medical leave. Schollenberger and Astacio, that's another one, uh, can keep their salaries even though the Office of Court Administration has barred them from handling cases. Only the state's Commission on Judicial Conduct has the power to remove judges from their posts. Wow. The commission does not comment on probes until and unless a judge is formally disciplined. What kind of probes? <laughs> uh, the... Uh, uh, Stasia was elected to her six-figure post in 2014. So, really, you know, Astacio was pulled over for DUI. That was her deal. Okay. And she told the cops, oh, my God, you're ruining my life. They found her behind the wheel of her car on the side of a highway around 8 a.m., February 13th. This is a judge. She reeked of alcohol, refused a breathalyzer. Oh, okay. <laughs> she got off with a $500 fine. What? A one-year conditional discharge and an interlock device on her car. Then in May, the judge overseeing her probation ordered a random alcohol test and after a high reading on the interlock device. Now, Estacio wasn't able to complete the test in a timely fashion because she was in Thailand. You're doing everything to show that you don't care what happens to your public trust, the judge told his colleague before throwing her in jail for contempt. She was in fucking Thailand. She, I mean, it's, uh, I'm sure that that's a condition that she's not supposed to go to Thailand. Vacation. Yeah. <laughs> But state law protects her anyway. Uh, they get un- they get unlimited sick leave. Judges. Now I'm going to look up this this uh, Elizabeth Schollenberger for you right now because I know that you are. Yeah, I want to see what you're she clamoring looks like. to see. I mean, 400 is. pounds. That's pretty heavy. However, I would think. I mean, there's people who weigh more than that who can like climb up three stairs and not make duty. There she is. Oh, let me see. She is wow. unattractive. She's horrible. Can you imagine having her tell you, there's a mess over here. Someone needs to clean it up. Yeah. And, and there's a mess running down my leg. Someone needs to clean it up. <laughs> I'm shitting myself. Grab a sponge and, uh, you know. Uh, it's Ooh, it stinks. <laughs> She's like, it stinks. <laughs> I think it's really gross. And Obviously, didn't it say she soiled her chair? And did demand another one. Yeah, she would she would soil her chair. This is and, disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> they even installed special railing, and uh, and they, they she suffers from a digestive disorder and morbid obesity, among other ailments like incontinence. She was unable to find the three steps to her courtroom bench, <laughs> even with the help of the specially installed railing. Uh, one committee member, Mark Elliott, had publicly announced uh, that the fix was in. That's what it was. She came to the interview with an oxygen tank. She's very fragile. No person could have looked at her as I did and thought that she could finish her 10-year term. Well, the committee rejected the Yale uh, School grad. 
uh, for the for appointment to the post, but she got the job anyway and promptly went on uh, the first medical leave of many medical leaves. Uh, just a week after being sworn in to her $175,000 a year job. Um, Man, what a sweet job. Yeah, the the judiciary is like, uh, I don't understand it thoroughly. I There's a guy, it occurred to me, you might want to have on as a guest who knows the ins and outs of judge corruption in New York. Oh, yeah? Like, like crazy. And, and do you think this person would appear? He kind of has a bad leg, but he might. I don't want cripples around now. If you're gonna... Oh, okay. Um, he's very uh, knowledgeable. But it's a very, very corrupt um, system, the judiciary. It, when they explain it, it's it's very difficult to understand. You understand why this person has a job? How, how it could possibly work that way. Well, she, uh, Schoenberger, was uh, the head of the Democratic Party. Well, there you go. That's, and, how, uh, that's how it happens. To make sure that he does support the chair of the Democratic Party, Councilmember Milagros uh, Lecuona, who's challenging Roach for the mayor, uh, mayor, I guess, of Mayor White Plains, said that uh, said he engineered Schoenberg's December 20th appointment to make sure he'd have that support. She was succeeded as the party's head, su- succeeded by uh, her husband, Tim James. Oh, so that's the Perfect. way they do it. It's a big yeah, problem no, for the exactly taxpayers. That's exactly how they do it. Fine. Now, here's what Schoenberger says, just to get her quote. She told the, the Post from her bed in White Plains Hospital, I have no intention of retiring. I want to work. I want to be a judge. Judges get sick all the time. You know what they don't do all the time? Shit the fucking chair. <laughs> Shit your robe. Well, uh, good talking to you. I think... Uh, Oh, can I just say one little thing? Please, I, I say a big thing. Um, did you hear about this woman, this um, Muslim woman? She went to the doctor, and he said, "Okay, well, um, I need to uh, get some. I need a sample of. Um, I need samples of blood, urine, and feces." Mm-hmm. And she said, "No problem. I'll just ring out my burqa." <laughs> <laughs> That's an update. That's an Islamophobic uh, version of the old, uh, I gave him my underwear, I told him you figure it out. <laughs> Gavin McInnes. You can hear him uh, four times a week. You can watch him four times a week. You know, say you're working at your computer. That's what I do sometimes. I just put on compound media. And I work until it's too distracting, and then I turn it off. I feel the same way about your show mm. and Anthony's show. If you have something boring to do, like tons of dishes, mm. or, I don't know, you got to fucking clean up the garage, you just fucking put it on your phone or your bring your laptop, and it makes the time to zip by. Yeah, it's entertaining. It's, it's, if you're not watching Compound Media yet, uh, it's just something that uh, I, I, I can forgive you, I guess, you know what I mean? But people act like it's a fucking fortune, and I know that there's like Netflix and Hulu and all the shit you're supposed to pay for. This has shit on it that you're just not going to see anywhere else. You know that else. cover in National Geographic where they have that Muslim woman with no nose? And it's just like a triangular hole. That's how I feel when I look at people who haven't subscribed to Compound Media. My heart breaks for them. Like a no-nose Muslim yeah, woman. There should be, you should be on the cover of National Geographic and it should say, the state of not having Compound Media in your life. <laughs> Thank you.
Is it over?